Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to Isotope's The New Audio Podcast. This month, we've got a little contest going on through Rafflecopter, where if you share this podcast on your social networks or SoundCloud, you're automatically entered to win a copy of Neutron, Ozone, or RX Standard. Find the link to the contest in the SoundCloud comments section or on the social post you link there from. We'll announce the winner on Isotope's Facebook page by 5 p.m. EST on August 24th. Now to the podcast. Jeff and I interviewed Brooklyn producer-engineer Aaron Bastinelli and his mastering partner in crime, L.A. mastering engineer Michelle Mancini. We chatted with the two of them about the careful conversations between mix and mastering engineers, achieving depth and dynamics in their work, as well as touching on how male engineers might act as allies to female engineers in the male-dominated field of audio production. All right, guys, kick back, relax, and here is the latest episode of The New Audio Podcast. Michelle, you can go first. Oh, great. Uh, well, my name is Michelle Mancini. I am a mastering engineer, so I make music louder. And I'm currently working out of uh, Larrabee Studios in L.A. And uh, I'm Aaron Bastinelli, and I'm a producer and engineer based out of Brooklyn, New York. And I work out of my basement. <laughs> I'm Jeff, and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, that meeting's later. So you guys actually work together quite a bit. Um, one of the reasons why I thought it would be really great to talk with you is that it's really funny. You never actually see mixing engineers and mastering engineers like together in the same place. There's there's, there's sort of like this uh, unspoken territorial um, weirdness. I remember um, when Dave Pensado was here uh, at Isotope, he came into MWorks Mastering Studio where Jonathan Weiner works, and he was just sort of like, making fun of the size of the speakers and just sort of like like having having fun at the expense of mastering engineers. So I just I, I wanted to talk to you guys a bit about how you sort of work together. So could you maybe take us through like uh, the workflow of, you know, from recording a band all the way up through, you know, delivering the master? Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, Michelle and I, we've known each other for a long time. We've, we went to college together. And uh, and she lived in New York for a while, and we hung out a lot. So as she was, you know, becoming a mastering engineer, I kind of started sending all my stuff to her. So you know, for me, it's you know, the the I've always considered mastering such an important part of the production process, and I'm pretty critical of it. So when I'm producing a band or working on a record, always I'm always trying to keep the um, end, obviously the end product in mind, and that definitely. Um, includes the the mastering side of stuff. So having an idea who you're going to be working with is a huge, huge help for that. You know, pre-production, get in the studio, start recording. Um, then I usually mix the record from there. And then uh, once it's done, uh, I send it off to Michelle. And we've worked together for a long time now. So I kind of know what she wants from me. And I think she knows uh, what to do with whatever the heck I give to her, which can sometimes be <laughs> be a, a, a varying quality, I suppose. No, no. Actually, one of my favorite things about, um, you know, working with, with a mix engineer for such a long time is that Aaron and I kind of know what to expect from each other. It's also helpful, too, if I have questions or if there's something, you know, different, we can always, I you know, I always feel like we have an open line of communication. So, um we can we can talk through stuff and it's always i feel like any if there's ever any a revision process or anything like that we're always kind of 
on the same page and it's easy to work stuff out as opposed to when there's, you know, I don't know who it is and it's just, you know, an email address with a link in it and that's my entire relationship. So it's it's nicer, you know, it's really nice when you uh, know know who you're dealing with. Yeah, and, and for myself as a mix engineer, when I'm working on projects that I'm just mixing, um, it's like super invaluable because I, I, if I'm not sure about a track I'm working on, if I'm, I'm, I'm mixing something and I'm like, I don't know, is this too bright or is there too much low end on this? I'll, I'll send it to her before it's even, you know, done and just be like, hey, get, when you get a chance, listen to this and let me know what you think if I'm kind of shooting in the wrong direction or, or, or whatever. So that kind of makes the end product much better and, uh, you know, makes it both of our lives a lot easier. Absolutely. And conversely, I've done the same thing when I was working on um, on a project that, you know, I was doing on spec or I was worried about. I wasn't sure. I did the same thing. of like, hey, Aaron, can you listen to this? Can you tell me if I'm crazy or not? That's a nice thing to have. <laughs> Another set of ears around. I feel like being a fly on the wall for those conversations must be kind of fascinating. Are they generally like very specific around, um, you know, frequency and, and compression or is it more like, you know, larger aesthetic terms like, you know, this is too dark or too wet or, you know, how, how do you guys talk about the music? I guess it depends. I, I think we're both more big picture people. So I, you know, I don't usually talk to anyone about specific frequencies unless there's like a really desperate need to. And I mean, I, I definitely get uh, I'll, I'll get hyper focused on specifics like that. But um it's nice sending it off to Michelle because she doesn't. <laughs> so I can be like, is there too much like 2.3 kilohertz happening? And she'll be like, no, it sounds fine. <laughs> okay. All right. Cool. Thanks. Oh, shit. You know? <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Um, I, I, you know, we, we do, I mean, we do get in when uh, we're, if we're working on a record together and I send her stuff to get mastered and she sends it back. Uh, and, you know, we're talking about, uh, some revisions and everything. Sometimes we'll get into more technical aspects, you know, like the the loudness ratios and uh, you know compression and and like what's affecting the depth of a track and everything. So we'll definitely go down that rabbit hole. But um, you know, I don't think we try to do that too much. I'm I'm wondering because you guys are both working together, but you're also your own people. Are there any creative clashes that happen on a mixing or mastering level? Like, and if so, what would you know, what would be the most common issues that are in contention? Like you get, you, you would get the mix, uh, the master back, Aaron, and be like, why did she take that out? You know what I mean? Or, or, or why did she make that? Like, I thought I had the drums exactly where they need to be. And now they're, you know, is there anything like that that ever happens? <laughs> like, what have you done? This is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I think that's kind of, to me, it's one of my favorite things about, you know, kind of having a relationship with a mix engineer is that, you know, we have almost different sets of ears, right? So like the stuff that Aaron will focus on in a mix, um, I oftentimes, you know, that's the last thing on my mind. Um, so it's kind of nice to have, to me, I really like having that distance. I feel like we're not just two people who are kind of picking at the same thing. Um, it allows us to kind of look at the the whole project or the whole song as as an entire entity on its own and sort of we're, we're bringing different things to it um, that, that the other person doesn't 
necessarily focus on or want to focus on. It's it's so cool to be able to have somebody when you when you're so attached to a project where you're working with a band in the studio, you're recording them, mixing them. At some point, the way that your brain approaches that material is is sort of set. It's hard to like step outside of that process. So having that other set of ears, the gestalt to say like, no, this is great, or like, wow, this is <laughs> off the mark or something. I, I can I mean I've have one hundred percent had that happen with other mastering engineers, but that's one of the reasons that I I love working with Michelle is that doesn't happen. Like I personally don't think that a mastering engineer should be trying to put their own stamp on something. I think it should be enhancing what's already there and making it better, but I shouldn't get the mix the masters back and be like, wow, this is completely different than what I sent to them. Which has happened to me and uh, is always makes for a more difficult process because it just means I have to spend, yeah, I just spend like four hours listening to the record over and over again, making notes on why the masters aren't right. So that doesn't happen when we're working together. She's the type of mastering engineer I like working with. And I think that's also part of the fact that we've just worked together for so long that... Um, you know, I, I know what to expect from her. If there's any type of notes, it's usually like, hey, uh, I think that this could be like a little bit louder or maybe just slightly less compressed. So there are definitely some stylistic things that sometimes, uh, you know, which is why you send it to someone else. Obviously, you, you want someone else's ears on it and to get uh, get what they think should be done. But um, it's well, that almost never happens. <laughs> I was going to say, I feel like... Um... You know, the other cool thing about, you know, working together is I feel a lot of times if there's some sort of, you know, like specific vibe that either you or the band is looking for, you'll usually communicate that to me in advance. So I can go listen to references or I can, you know, just, you know, stylistically know which direction, you know, everybody has been going in so I don't start pushing against the grain. Um, and that that usually makes the process a lot smoother. Yeah, I'm a big believer in references. I use them. Um, all the time when mixing and when producing, and so I'll I'll send uh, I'll send Michelle whatever mixes I've been re- referencing against, which is so helpful. <laughs> yeah, so we're just all kind of like calibrated in the same direction, you know. To that end, using references, what happens when the sound that a band is going for? What if the the record that they give you as a reference was mastered in like 1972 or something? How do you, you know, how do you like take that and then bring it into a modern? Um, to a modern audience? Well, whenever I'm dealing with references with bands, I always try to really make a clear point that the reference should not be um, a specific thing that you're going for. It's not like, we want this to sound just like this. It's like, it's it's each song in your reference playlist or whatever is just like a sonic palette. It's just like, you know, it's like this palette of of ideas and you're kind of extrapolating from each one um, what it is you're trying to aim for. They're just more of like a guiding light uh, instead of like a, I'm trying to cop this exact same thing. Uh, Cause that just never works. You, you know, it's just people, I've definitely had people try to do that. Uh, and it's like, well, you didn't write a song like that and you don't sound like that. So what do you think is going to happen? You, your song will exist in its own way. It's its own thing or your record or whatever. And we're just using these as, examples of kind of our aesthetic absolutely if if i get a reference that's that you know sounds um either production wise or just you know stylistically or sonically sounds super different from the song um i'll usually try and and get in touch with with you know the person who sent me the reference to try and like pick to understand what about it you know what in the vibe or what in the feeling you know is it what you know what specifically is it in the reference that they're trying to, you know, compare to the the thing that they want to master. 
I always found that talking about music to be very difficult in terms of, you know, having a conversation with a, a mix engineer, a mastering engineer, and you're saying, I want it to be big or I want it to be wide or, you know, and you talked to, you talked about depth. It's just very hard to verbalize some of these things that are so artistic in a way. I'm, I'm curious on the client side for you guys, when someone presents a multi-track mix to you, do you work exclusively with Michelle or, or, or can someone give you a mix and say, listen, I know that you work with Michelle, but I heard about this great guy or this great girl in X, Y, or Z city or how exactly? does it work on the client front so if i'm for example uh just mixing a record um like you know I, the first thing i always ask is uh you know who they plan on using for mastering and most people are like oh i don't know like uh who do you recommend and then i'll i'll give them michelle's information so it's definitely it's not an exclusive uh package deal because i know that you know every artist um has a different situation and uh you know they they, or they may have worked with someone in the past and they really liked what they did. What I do stress is that if they're not going to use Michelle, um, that you know, they just send me the, the like info about the person that they're going to use, more or less just to kind to kind of make sure they're not using some bogus person. I'm wondering what Aaron, what your sort of mixing style, what your sound is, if you had to have one, what your your sort of aesthetic might be. I think uh, I I don't know I I'm always. I don't really think about like what my style is, you know, uh, I'm always trying to go, uh, for making my, whatever I'm working on, whatever mixes I'm working on, making them, uh, commercially viable, making them as, you know, polished and professional sounding as they can, but still injecting as much vibe and, you know, width and depth and everything into them. Like that's, um, you know, it's like chasing the dragon. I'm constantly trying to make my mixes sound, you know, bigger and wider and, they just have a lot, of, a lot of really nice space in them. Good use of space. Can't say I always succeed, but I certainly always try. So, yeah. <laughs> the main approach I like to take to mastering is um, kind of on like a visceral level, um, which is one of the reasons I hate talking about frequencies and stuff if I don't have to. Is that you know I'm kind of talk, you know, I'll sit in front of my in my little space and kind of it's my little altar of sound, and I close my eyes and I just see how it feels, you know, in my body, see how it feels visually in my mind. Um, and that's sort of the, what, you know, and then I try to bring something to that. That's, I guess that would sort of my manifesto. Yeah. I think, I guess to kind of like uh, tack onto mine and kind of in the same vein as Michelle, like the most important thing for me when listening to music is, is the emotion of the track. So what, what can I do when mixing, you know, what do I need to push to increase, like to really set that emotion off? You know, what is the thing that's going to really like for each section, you know, push the track so that it's, it feels better for the listener. You know, really, you kind of, you just feel it. That's the, yeah, it's the, exploiting the emotion, I guess, is, <laughs> is the term. You know, sometimes it's funny that you say that. I remember thinking to myself one night, uh, maybe a year ago or something, going, you know, in a weird way, I feel like my job is just to emotionally manipulate people. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, um, Michelle, I, I've never actually heard someone talk about mastering like that, but I it it sounds the way that you talk about it sounds what the way that I would imagine it to be. But so much of the the conversation and the way that we talk about this stuff is comes down to being so nitty gritty and so in the weeds. Um, it's refreshing to hear someone That's talk wonderful. about music like that. Uh, thanks. So, thank you. 
I have a question for you guys about loudness normalization. It's happening, it seems, a lot across streaming services, which is kind of like, you know, the venue for new music now, or it seems to be becoming that. How does that affect your deliverables on the mixing level and on the mastering level, if it affects it at all? Yeah, I mean, I'll start because then I think uh, Michelle will be able to piggyback off this uh, really easily. I love learning about that stuff. Like, I love, I'm all for the loudness normalization. I think it's a great thing for music uh it mostly because it's helping to finally end the loudness wars like it doesn't matter how loud you are it just doesn't matter like you are going to all be the same volume and your stuff that's super loud is most likely going to sound smaller than the stuff that's not quite as slammed that's not necessarily all the case but in a lot of times it can be so I've started to, you know, a couple of my other engineer mixed friends, and we, we, we went d- deep down that, that rabbit hole of um, judging uh, how loudness normalization, normalization works uh, and, you know, how that translates to our mixes and what we can do from the mixing level to prepare uh, for mastering in the best way. So for me, I, I do a lot of metering. I... Uh, I mean, Insight is, and I'm not plugging that because of the podcast. <laughs> Insight Checks is like... in the mail. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Insight is always on my master bus. It's the most important metering plugin I have. Um, so I can check my luffs. I can, you know, whatever. It's got um, all the, the amazing features. Um, and then one of the other plugins I use uh, by Nugent Audio is called Master Check Pro. Which, Ooh. Yeah, <laughs> we'll just edit. We'll just edit that out. Which has a really great. Uh, uh, this interview is over. <laughs> it's got a great PLR meter, and it also allows you to route audio back in, so you can kind of uh, compare and contrast. So, I, I constantly have Spotify feeding into Pro Tools, and I use a combination of, of the of Insight and MasterCheck uh, to be able to listen to my mix and listen to Spotify and go back and forth. Um, level matching to make sure that uh, you know my mix doesn't sound stupid. First off, and uh, and second to see how it's going to be affected. Uh, you know by that by that um, normalization. If Dave Pensato came into your studio and held a gun to your head and was like, you know, you've got to get rid of either the Nugent plugin or Insight. Which plugin would you get rid of? Um, man, that's a tough question. No, I I, I would. I would I would get rid of the Nugent plugin. Uh, That's what well, I only because I could I can do what it's doing. It just makes it easier for me. Like, it, like the, the the offset to match and feeding. It's sort of a crutch. It's sort of a crutch. It's sort of a crutch. <laughs> wow, you guys must have had some intense I'm like so warfare with Nugent. Right Jeez. <laughs> um. Uh. No, but the, we call them. Uh, they who shall not. They, be <laughs> oh, okay, good, good, good. Uh, no, but the the I, I need the the metering uh, of um, of insight. The I uh, the the spectrograph. I, I use that in the uh, the critical mode, uh, which I I find really really super awesome. Uh, it's just it it makes the graph make sense to me, I guess, because uh, <laughs> without it, I don't really understand what the heck's happening. So. Um, that's a, I, I use that from the start. Nugent doesn't come on until like after the mix is like 95% done. I do agree with, with what Aaron is saying. Um, and one of the reasons that I love working with him is that he has this philosophy because a lot of people don't. Um, I think in, at least in, in my experience lately, um, people still care about loudness and people, 
um, well, two things. One, um, you know, I still get the calls all the time that says, please make this the loudest thing you've ever heard. Uh, please make this song louder than this other song, you know, um, which becomes increasingly an enigma of a request because, you know, unless I go and drive down to Amoeba Music and buy a CD every time someone says, can you make it louder than this other song, I have to pull it up on Spotify or iTunes. And I, you know, and everything that I'm working on sounds louder than anything that's playing on iTunes or Spotify. So um, I'm I'm growing increasingly wary of when people ask me to do that because I don't know. Um, and I, I still get requests, you know, constantly to just slam things, which makes me so unhappy um, because I mean, I, I try. I've walked people off of ledges before when it comes to the loudness stuff. I've also lost clients because I wouldn't make it louder. Um, you know, it, it depends on who you're talking to um, and who's really calling the shots. You know, if it's if we're talking about an A-level artist um, and I have access to speak with them directly, you know, that's my best shot at getting getting people to back off because then I can talk about, you know, also, you know, not just what what's happening in Spotify and iTunes, but also what's happening in terms of, you know, let's just say, for example, that this person buys, a, you know, a CD or is listening to this at, at whatever volume at this compression. You know, you and I know what's happening. It's distorting. It's it's, you know, it's crackly. It's, you know, maybe it's just harsh because of how far we're pushing it. But, you know, your average listener is not going to know that. They're just going to know that all of a sudden they have a headache and they don't want to listen to your song anymore. You know, like, is, so, you know, a lot of times I ask people that I'm like, is that how you want your audience to feel? Is that how you want your fans to feel? And then they're like, oh, um, you know, so so I get. But, you know, sometimes I don't most of the time, really, I artists are never around for mastering. They're usually there for the mixing. And then by the time they get to mastering, they're either on tour or they're not in the same place or they're already doing something else. So I rarely really get to interact with the clients directly. And at that, you know, if I'm dealing with label people or producers who, you know, just insist on having a certain loudness, there's really not, you know, anything I can do about that. It, it is after all a service industry, you know, it's, it's, I don't get to call the shots all the time. And the other thing that actually has, I don't know if this is related, but maybe it is. Um, a lot of times I feel like this happens to mix engineers too. Um, and it certainly happens to me all the time. I'll get sent a, a mix to master, um, and then I'll get sent a reference that looks like a stick of butter. And if I don't make it sound that smushed, they're gonna—they don't—they don't like what I did. At which point I start to wonder why they called me in the first place. But you know, that's another story. Uh, but I feel like like mix engineers get stuck in this sort of rabbit hole a lot too, where you get sent a you know a reference that's louder than every anything you've ever heard. You know, yeah. I mean, that's definitely that. Just, I mean, that just happened to me this week. I, I'm working on, I'm, I'm mixing this track, and they they sent me the um, the uh, the like rough mix reference mix, and it was like slammed to like minus six luffs. I mean, like average. You know, just like vaporized. And you're like, I'm not. I mean, I'm not gonna mix it. Like, there's no, <laughs> like, yeah, it, there's no way I'm gonna be able to mix. I'm gonna mix something that loud. It's just not gonna happen. It, it sounded awful, you know. And if you do, <laughs> you certainly don't want your name on it, you right. know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's like, all right, when I gotta figure out, like, I, I gotta send. I'm gonna have to send a reference, you know, my like first mix back to these, and it's like, well, what are they gonna start comparing it? And then you just hope that they're like smart enough not to like compare the two, you know, like to go back and forth. Yeah. They understand how loudness works. Um, so. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough when you've got uh, when you're trying to fight that expectation of what the loudness is. 
Have you done any, have you done any masters to minus fourteen luffs like ever? Because that's like what the that's what the standard is now, right? On all those. Streams. Honestly, it's it's almost always louder. Um, I mean, I don't um, I don't necessarily look at that stuff while I'm mastering because I kind of grew up looking at you know the Duros and I've got you know a, a DK meter um, and I you know that's what I'm used to looking at. That's what I'm used to feeling out. So um, I haven't really paid that much attention to lefts. Um, so I'm not entirely sure how to ask that question. But I do remember when we were working on an album where we convinced the artists that we were going to mix and master this like for Spotify. Um, we were talking about that a lot. We were comparing stuff back and forth and sending, uh, you know, masters back and forth to see like what the what the best level would be. Um, and I, even like the first thing that I sent was much louder than than the minus 14, if I recall. Yeah, well, that's that was also when they were um, it was minus the, they were doing minus 11. Um, okay. That was like the, they hadn't switched to minus 14. But that was actually a really interesting, it was, it was a great record. Uh, and it was an interesting experiment because um, I was involved in it from the start to the finish and then Michelle was mastering it. And it was right as the all the articles and information were, was coming out about, uh, you know, uh, LUFs and how uh, LUFs and PLR were being effect, or were being measured uh, for the no- normalization on Spotify and iTunes and, and YouTube. So we kind of used it as an experiment to be like, okay, well, what happens if we don't, you know, slam these masters? Let's let's do masters that are a little bit quieter, you know, relatively speaking, um, and see how they translate into Spotify. Because what's one of the cool things about Spotify and with Apple, you know, you you can just drop in a local file and it'll still add that normalization to it. So it's really easy to judge which, like, you know, do a louder master, do a, do a quieter master, you know, do an in-between and throw them into Spotify and start comparing them against other tracks and see how, how they get affected. And we ended up going with the 11, 11 Luffs, you know, the, the like, that's that, that quieter point. And they, the record sounds really great. <laughs> At least I think so. I want to go back to something that we were talking about earlier. I think um, it was one of the first things that we discussed, and it's the idea of um, depth in in the recordings. And it's it's something that I notice with my own, you know, amateur mixes slash masters where the, the, you know, I'm like 90% of the way there, but what I'm really missing from as compared to stuff that I've had professionally mixed and mastered is that idea of depth and Obviously, you know, it's not just one thing, but could you help listeners try to understand what goes into creating depth? Like maybe, you know, it just at a high like aesthetic level. Sure. I mean, I mean, I'm constantly fighting for it, constantly trying to improve upon it. It's, you know, it's um, something that I think can all, you can always better yourself on. Um, for me, I, what I've learned uh, since working and trying to gather gain as much depth and space into my mixes um well first off you know it's about understanding eq and compression appropriately uh, and how to use those when they're your tracks that's you know but that's kind of obvious with mixing in general um automation is huge huge uh i'm just like you know pushing things uh just like and we're not talking about like large swaths of automation like oh we're going to bring this down six to eight db just like you know a db and a half here and then a little bit just having things move a little bit you kind of create you really create that space uh by kind of in a way you're almost adjusting the arrangement because you're pushing certain elements in and out a little bit more 
And then uh, also, like, you know, I do a lot of automation on my master bus. So my master, my master fader gets a lot of automation. So, you know, you kind of like starts off in one spot and then the big chorus comes in and it's like, boom, it sounds huge. It comes out, explodes. And it's because you're just doing a ton of automation throughout the track. Really? Yeah. It's a pain in the butt. <laughs> Wait a second. This is, this is like blog my mind. Right oh, yeah. Now. Like you, you can, you can do that. Absolutely. I've I've actually I I remember sitting behind um, the front of house at a, at a national show and actually watched him ride the master fader and I was like, oh that's such a good idea I never I never imagined you could do that, or that a mix engineer would do that like within a mix that's that's fascinating. Oh yeah, hmm. and what's when you kind of start to get used to it you know you you work your automation between your master fader and your individual tracks. Um, together so that they you know like maybe your master fader is coming down you know it's getting quieter and you can actually be pretty pretty dramatic with those rides sometimes and it's not you know and you can then you know you're bringing up other elements in the mix at the exact same time so it never feels like it never feels like the track is getting smaller or quieter it just you know it's pushing things in different directions so so that's almost like um creating the the dynamics through you know automation and, and writing that's that's wild very cool yeah especially because you know a lot of the stuff i'm working on you know it, it's definitely that kind of like electro pop you know top 40 sounding stuff and even some of the rock stuff i do kind of has that aesthetic so there's a, there's a lot of compression happening a lot of compression happening in the tracking stage a lot of compression happening in the mixing stage, you know, layers and layers and layers of compression, layers and layers and layers of DSing, you know. Uh, and when that happens, obviously, your your sounds start to get a little bit flatter, you know, you have to be really careful with it. So by reintroducing these automations into the, the track, you, you kind of, you, you, don't, you, you, you don't end up getting that like two-dimensional flat sound, really, is, you know, that's, which is what I'm trying to avoid. <laughs> and are you, are you drawing all that automation in? Or are you doing any sort of real-time fader writing when you write the automation? It's a little bit of both. So I've got, you know, like the, the avid artist control. So I've just got four faders. Um, but I'll, I'll definitely write automation with those. But honestly, like, I'd say like 80% of the time I'm just drawing it in. I, I don't think anyone's that. <laughs> Maybe few people are that good to just to 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 write it in real time. I, I, yeah, I exactly. Go back I mean, and well, it's just so easy anyway. to just do it that way. You know, unless you've got a giant fader bank in front of you, I don't really see how it would be easier. I, one of the first engineers I worked for did used to do a lot of automation. I mean, and this is on like a seventy-two channel SSL. You know, so he was obviously doing it all. <laughs> he was doing most of it in in real time, and you know, or like not in real time, but like he'll be writing a section, then roll it back, and you know, go forward and uh, put put it back into write mode and write, write another section and tweak it and everything. So I think it just probably came from watching guys who had been around for 30 years and seeing how that's kind of how they do it. Michelle, uh, how, how do you go about creating depth when, um, when you feel like a mix is particularly flat? Well, um, I mean, you can't uncompress something. So, um, you know, and I, uh, Compression, uh, as Aaron was saying earlier, is really, you know, you have to be really careful with it because you can you can destroy something much faster than you can bring something to a, a, a mix by by compressing. Um, I usually find um, I, I don't like to do a whole lot of compression ever on anything, um, which I know probably sounds weird. But, you know, especially given, you know, the example that Aaron just gave us, you know, there's already so much compression that's gone on before I receive something. Um, so I'll, what I often do is um, I'll have a number of different um, 
compressors and I'll only do, you know, only up to a half a dB of compression on this one. Maybe this one only goes up to like, you know, a dB of compression. I never go more than a dB and a half on anything. Um, sometimes I'll also even load uh, run audio through a compressor or through a limiter without actually doing any compression or limiting because just to get a flavor of, you know, of that sound that that, you know, that one compressor is bringing or doing something, even if it's kind of like a voodoo thing, you know, if you compare the two, it's it's still giving something, you know. Um, and also, um, I feel like I, I use a lot of MSEQ, and I think that also helps bring depth out, you know, when if I'm trying to pull the vocal a little bit out of the mix, or if I'm trying to give a little sparkle on the sides or something that kind of gives the whole the whole image a little bit more of a of a shine. Could you uh, explain uh, mid-side EQ for folks who might not know what it is? Sure. Um, it is instead of, you know, you, typically you're, you, you've got a stereo EQ that you're putting on your master bus or something like that. Um, you know, it'll affect uh, both left and right channels the same way. Um, so with a mid-side EQ, um, there's some crazy math happening in there where um, if you've got, you know, your typical uh, stereo EQ set up, the, what was typically the left side will actually only affect frequencies um, in the center of your mix. And what's typically the right side of your EQ only affects the outside of your mix. Um, so both sides. So if you, you know, if I'm boosting, you know, 2K in the center, um, it's going to bring out whatever is around that, uh, you know, frequency range in the center and not on the sides, which is really great for like, if you've got, for example, a lead singer and then there's a lot of maybe symbols going on on the sides that are kind of drowning the, the, the vocal out or, or they're distracting from the vocal. And I want to pull that vocal out, but without making those symbols come out as well. So um, I, that's, that's one of my favorite reasons for, for mid-side EQ. And Michelle, have you ever found any um, uh, usefulness for automation in your, in your masters? Maybe some gain automation on a chorus or something like that? I use uh, Sequoia as my, my main digital audio workstation, Ooh. which is a PC-only program. Yeah, I know. Um, but, you know, the way that I learned, you know, to, to use the program is it's not track-based editing. It's uh, object-based editing, which I believe Pro Tools does now as well, I've, I've heard. Um, so if, you know, if I want to treat uh, a verse differently than a chorus, I'll just cut the song up into verses and choruses and, you know, and, if, you know, affect those, those parts differently. Um, so... I'm not really using automation because I don't have to, because I can do things piece by piece if I wanted to. Well, if we could actually just, if we could continue, Michelle, um, what sort of things when you're doing this sort of object-based um, automation or editing, what, what things are you doing um, specifically? A lot of times if, um, it, for either if there's a lot of dynamics. I don't want to give any state secrets away. No, no. But... If, I mean, it, it, this works the same way, whether, you know, the, what I'm dealing with is a track that, was kind of maybe over compressed so there's not a lot of dynamic difference between the verses and the choruses sometimes i'll you know drop the verses down a little bit so that when the chorus hits it's actually exciting um or sometimes you know depending on um the arrangement of the song you know like maybe in the choruses there's the whole big production and there's so much stuff going on um you know in the high end so you know i'm not i'm not boosting a lot of high end because i don't want it to sound too shrill but during the, you know, the verses or maybe an intro or a bridge, um, you know, maybe it's just a vocal and a piano or something. So I can go in there and add more sparkle and shine to that vocal without, you know, 
um, you know, messing something up or affecting other parts. Whereas if I kept the same settings for the whole song, you know, it might sound too dark during this part and too bright during the other part. Um, and you can also, it's really useful for going in and surgically, you know, removing like the clicks and uh, little little distortions and stuff like that. Very cool. Um, I guess because you uh, both put Sean and I through the new gen discussion, I feel it's only fair that we have a question about Cloud Bounce and Lander. So <laughs> do you guys, I mean, here we go. Do you guys consider them competition or are they providing something that's ultimately different and perhaps not truly mastering? Who wants to go first? Um, I have I have opinions on this. Actually, um, this, is, this is interesting because just the other day, uh, like two days ago, someone sent me their song for mastering and they said, you know, just as a heads up, um, you know, I, f I finally convinced this band to, to use a real mastering engineer, but I wanted you to have the Lander version that they are used to. So just as like a kind of an experiment for myself, I didn't listen to the Lander version. I mastered it the way I wanted to master it. And when I thought it sounded good and it felt good, I pulled up the Lander version and I compared them. And it was like light years of difference. The Lander version was dull. It had no dynamics. The kicks, all of the transients were smushed. You know, um, it sounded brittle and not bright enough. Um, it, it, you know, it was like, like looking at a two-dimensional version of something versus a three-dimensional version of something. To go, that kind of summarizes my opinion of Lander. Um, I agree with that right now. Uh, I don't think that as of right now, it's a uh, competition, but there's no point in denying that at some point in time that it will be really good. And the same thing goes as far as a, a, a mix engineer. I know that they, uh, that there are, that there are uh, people out there working on automated mixing services. Um, and uh, eventually they're going to be pretty good. What I believe is that those will be services that will most likely be appealing to people who are not professionals, um, you know, weekend warrior types, which is totally fine. Like there, I mean, there are a lot of people out there who work on music and make music and it's, um, it's a hobby for them and there's nothing, nothing at all wrong with that. And I work with a lot of bands who are like that. Uh, so there will be a place for that stuff. Um, it, it will exist and it will take work away from some people who rely on those types of artists. Um, I don't think, at least not in our lifetime, <laughs> I hope, <laughs> that it will ever get to the point where it, um, it takes over jobs from uh, professionals working on professional music. Maybe I'm just telling myself that to make myself feel better. <laughs> I mean, they're gonna get better. The algorithms are gonna get better and they're gonna get close. I don't know if they will ever be able to make the creative decisions uh, that a human can make when listening to a piece of music, and you know, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of nuance that goes into both the mixing and mastering that is you know decision based and um, aesthetic based, which may not be able to be made by an algorithm. Yeah, I mean that's that's one of the reasons I really love focusing on the on the viscerality of music and on the you know. On the viscerality of what we bring to the table, um, you know, it, and if you, that's I, I don't think an algorithm would ever be able to process or consider 
that sort of thing. Um, you know, maybe artificial intelligence, like, you know, if Androids start mixing and mastering, you know, maybe they will be able to consider that. But I'm not sure that just, you know, a math equation would really be able to um, take that into account. I, I am interested in uh, how those uh, how those uh, technologies will be used um, as tools for professionals. How the, if they may you know uh, may get rolled into uh, you know um, metering plugins or you know I mean obviously uh, you know Neutron has the, the track assist feature, which is you know uh, it's not like automatic mixing or anything, but it's certainly a uh, a, a great guideline for a lot of, I mean I've used it a, a bunch of times on, on mixes and in certain elements where it's like sure let's see what this does oh wow, that is better you know increasing the speed um and workflow how that how that type of stuff uh, gets rolled in if I can have a piece of software that helps fix things faster so that I don't have to worry about fixing them myself <laughs> I'm all for it <laughs> uh, for both of you in spite of your like years of experience um what remains the most difficult aspect of mixing and mastering just if you could just pick one thing each what does it continue to be um that's a really hard question um here's a good one um i think achieving the perfect room sound in in the studio i feel like no matter how well built the place is or you know how long you spend with an acoustician and the speakers and the converters and the stuff it always feels like there's just one little thing that's always still missing. It's not perfect. Um, that's, I guess that's my, you know, chasing the dragon forever. How does that manifest itself? Is it a null or is it a, a flutter echo? Like, what are you hearing that makes you go, oh, I, we just don't have it yet? I mean, it's, it could be anything, you know, in different rooms that I've been in, it's, you know, like, oh God, there's this crazy coma happening. Um, you know, at 1K, I can't move my head. Good God. Um, or, you know, it could be, you know, when you're, you uh, scrolling through frequencies, you know, you might notice some of those like really bottom subs are missing. Um, you know, it depends on the room size. It depends on, you know, the, the, the acoustics that are in the room and, you know, and how that's interacting with your equipment. So, um, I mean, it can be any number of things. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I'm definitely always chasing the, the perfect setup for sure. Um, I think, uh, I'm going to step out of the, uh, the like, uh, gear side of it for this question i'm going to say that the most difficult thing um at least in my experience and i've seen this with other people also uh dealing on a day-to-day -day basis is removing your own ego from the situation and not Ooh, that's a good one. and not letting it um you know steer you wrong michelle i i've been debating whether or not to even get into this topic with you and and actually if if you if we if we ended the interview now i would be super happy with it this is fantastic I have a, a female coworker at Isotope who I have conversations with about feminism. I, I basically just want to call out that, you know, this is such a, a male dominated industry. And, um, I, you know, I think it's pretty common knowledge that it can be hard to be a woman in this industry still um, because you're either discriminated against or, you know, people like me are always asking questions or... Um, you know, who knows? I don't, I haven't had that experience, but I, I guess what I, what I would want to ask is, um, for the listeners of this show and, you know, the, the people from the Isotope community, like how could we be allies of women in audio? Oh, geez. I don't know. Um, I mean, I know personally, even, even from college, you know, it was just really rare to see women in technology, um, you know, 
in just technology studies. Um, all of the women, the majority, you know, like like night, upwards of 90 percent of the women that I meet in the music industry are in some uh, form of, you know, they're not in the technical side of things. They're they're in the administrative side. They're on, you know, uh, secretary sort of stuff. They're managing stuff. Um, but they're very rarely you know, doing the technical engineering parts of stuff. There's obviously some really amazing exceptions to that. Um, but um, I haven't dealt personally with a tremendous amount of, you know, I haven't really felt like someone's like, oh, not going to use me because I'm a woman. Um, I have felt in the past, you know, in situations where I felt it was expected of me to do administrative work because that's just part of the deal. Um, but I mean, I'm not sure. That's a really interesting and tricky question in terms of, you know, like, what can men do? Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I didn't I didn't mean to put you on the spot. That's oh, no, no. I, I mean, it's a really ask. good question. I just it's I've, I honestly haven't really considered it from that perspective. Um, I have. I mean, I mean, here's a nice story is there's you know, there's been plenty of times when I mean, when I especially when I first got out here um, and I, you know, I was really. The only people who did know me knew me as an assistant. They didn't really know me as a mastering engineer for, you know, on my own. Um, and, you know, at first it was pretty hard to convince people to give me a shot. And then um, as time went on, I found that um, the more people gave me a shot, the more I would win and the more that they would keep coming back. Um, so, I mean, maybe the answer is give a woman a shot. Even if you don't know if you're, you know, maybe that's the answer. I don't know. That's a great answer. Cool. Thank you. Awesome. Well, guys, this was like a totally amazing conversation. I think this is like my favorite podcast. This is, this was an absolute, absolute delight, guys. Seriously, oh, this awesome. is, this is, yeah, this is the best podcast that I've been a part of with, uh, with Isotope. You guys are awesome. And Jeff didn't even like awesome. drag it down like he usually no. does. I mean, it, it's, which is nice. it's the best because of just how little Sean contributed yeah, to it. Yeah, I, I was hanging back for this one, <laughs> which is rare. <laughs> 